In a workshop on a small peninsula of land near the Nelson Airport, Pākehā bone carver Brian Flintoff is at work. For more than 40 years, Brian has been producing carvings, and since the early 1990s, taonga pōuru, traditional Māori musical instruments. His work is held in marae all around New Zealand, and in public collections and museums throughout the world. So what's that you're working on there? I'm working on a nguru, a type of flute, um, that is a really special. I, I love the nguru, but this nguru has a bird. You can see it's starting to take shape on the top here. And this is the kōkako. And uh, the story of the, of the flutes is wonderful. All the instruments are gifts from the gods. And uh, the flutes are the children of Rokotori. Uh, the grandchild of one of the creation gods and she loved her flute so much she decided she wasn't going to be parted from it and turned herself into a case moth and so the the case moth the shape of the case moth is the shape of the putorino flute and uh, she lived inside there the male turns into a moth but the female doesn't so how did she get into this work um, originally about oh, 40 years ago I suppose I was teaching special education and uh, needed a hobby to get rid of some of the stress of the, the daytime work and saw some bone carvings for the first time in my life in the shop and just had a sudden thought I'd like to do that and I picked up a piece of bone off Nelson's boulder bank and took it back up to Wellington where I was and uh, had to teach myself because nobody was really doing it commercially at that stage. Then after a while I decided I, it was a hobby that I enjoyed for relaxing and I thought I'd try it as a job and took a year off teaching and after two weeks I knew I wasn't going back. So self-taught but I guess uh, inspiration from the carvings of, of the indigenous people of the land? Absolutely, yes. Uh, when I started um, political correctness, uh, they, nobody thought up those two common words together. Um, and I'd been doing it for quite a while before I read an article that suggested that it wasn't politically correct for a non-Maori or Pākehā to be doing this, working in the, in the field. But by that stage, I was hooked um, because... The school we were at in Wainuemata had uh, spare rooms that had downsized and one was being used for a precursor of the kohanga reo. And so the old Māori people would come in, and the young ones, and they saw me learning bone carving, so they would ask me to do something and tell me some things, and I would go to the museums, research it myself to try and do a good job. And um, I just suddenly, you know, that angle of having the Māori people at the school uh, just became the focus and I found, one, I loved the art form but mostly I think I fell in love with the philosophy of the art form. So the philosophy of the art is now very, very important to me and when you analyse it really, uh, because Māori had no word for art, uh, because it was such a integrated part of the, the whole life, uh, is philosophy of the people as well. And of course the philosophy became uh, the um, 
mythology because it was put into story form for children to understand so they grew up naturally with the whole way of thinking. The, the artwork, the carving, the stories and the song uh, and the painting all became a vehicle for expressing the mythology primarily. So, um, did you pursue that uh, as as a as an education for yourself? Uh, I mean, did you go to people and ask them to to share their knowledge? How did you go about that? A whole mixture of things. Um, firstly, I I guess it was reading, and then going to people to get that verified. And of course, I was very fortunate that very early on, perhaps because there weren't many people doing bone carving. I was supported by important Māori people who made sure, one, that I was going in the right direction and they would help me with obtaining the information I needed. People like Tipani O'Regan and uh, Tiawi Davis, I could go on and on, uh, they've been very generous, amazingly generous when you know how many times uh, Māori people have been ripped off and so to take a chance on somebody is really putting your neck on the line. Um, so I'm very fortunate that they were so generous. I suppose for me the discovery of finding this culture that I'd been living beside, but travelling beside it and not getting involved in it very much at all, uh, and finding the treasures that it has for Māori people, but beyond that, for the whole world, because some of the ways of thinking um, have given me an understanding of the world that's completely different. My training at school was in science and maths, so logic was very important. But to step into this other world and find there was a completely different logic there, but it was still very logical, uh, it opens your mind, and that opening of your mind is the essential thing for all those people uh, who've ventured into the Māori world to be able to do. So can you give me an example of that in terms of uh, how that might impact on, on the early work you were doing and the subsequent work, work as your knowledge increased? Interestingly, the early work I was doing was done with the love of the form because I didn't have the knowledge. Um, when I gathered together slowly the knowledge and uh, the, the reason behind why things were done in the different ways, it added a really exciting new dimension. I lived out in the country and we had grandchildren living in the same, on the same property and they would come into the workshop. And I thought about it, they'd pick up bits that I'd cut out of a design off the floor and they'd play with them and say this is a, a bird or a, this is a something and I thought now what's going on here? The pieces that I've cut out are appealing in shape to them and, and to their imagination. I said there's got to be something powerful going on here and then when I found the um, philosophy behind it, it was that when I was doing the bone carving, the piece of bone is the physical form, but the cutouts are the spiritual shapes. And if you look at the, my bone carvings, especially because I've really 
uh, accentuated that way, you'll find that the shape of all the cutouts is the most important part of the design. You look at it, you see the bone carving, but something inside you sees those cutouts, and so you're pleased on the conscious and the subconscious level, and it makes it a very powerful art form. And of course, when you wear one, people look through the holes that are in that, and the person wearing it becomes part of the spirit of the design. So there's a quite a strong spiritual aspect to to the work as you understand it and the and your own work. Definitely, yes. That the well, it's it's the balance, and of course, if you're going to have balance, you've got to have that. As you progressed with your work, uh, did you become more immersed in, in, in a Māori world at the same time? Yes. Um, it, it really was inevitable. Um, in fact, I went to, an, early on, I went down to Kaikoura um, to a Wānanga when they were preparing to build their meeting house. And... Um, I sort of went with some Department of Conservation people to get a ride down there and I felt I wasn't being really warmly treated uh, even though I'd been invited there by Sir Tipani um, and then somebody said to Tipani, who's this Pākehā? We don't know who this is and he said, oh that's not a Pākehā, that's our Mōkai and it was a word I didn't know at all uh, but it, suddenly everybody was very friendly and uh, <laughs> it was a whole big difference. So I got home and I thought, I better look this up. Uh, and Mokai, the first meaning was a pet. I thought, well, I don't mind being a pet. Uh, but the next meaning was also a slave. Uh, but, and, and of course, that was how I operated, that I was giving stuff back to the Māori world. It wasn't just being done for me. And that aspect of absolutely doing it for the love of what it stands for and for what it means for the Māori world is a really what makes it worthwhile. D- did you go looking for, for mentors uh, or did you pretty much want to stay with your own understandings of the way these things worked? A mixture of that. Um, for Māori people, a lot of the time, they don't have to dig into all the reasoning behind it. But coming from the Pākehā world uh, and coming from a background of wanting to know the logic, I had to make sense of it for myself uh, to, to understand, you know, and if you don't know how it works, you can only do copies. And fortunately, Māori people were so giving, uh, they wouldn't always uh, come straight out and give you the answer you wanted. They would be more likely to tell you a story that you had to think about and that is a treasure too because to Māori people traditionally knowledge is a treasure. So the, the language, uh, did, did you ever delve into that Brian? I tried but as at high school language was my failing subject <laughs> uh, I find language very difficult and um, and I found when I got amongst it, I loved hearing it and, and things, um, but, yeah, I flounder. I have a prepared speech that I've had to use quite often, and I, uh, I learned it in Māori, and 
I say taku mahi, taku kōrero, my work is my talk, <laughs> and then I can sit down. <laughs> so that, um, that's progressed over 40 years to a point where you're in, your examples of your work are in an awful lot of places and in an awful lot of marae around the place, aren't they? That, yeah, I'm very, very proud of that they're in Māori settings and uh, I think Sir Tiffany going back to it, he came back one day and he said, oh, I've just been to a Brian Flintoff exhibition. I didn't know I had any stuff out on exhibition. He meant he'd been to a meeting of Māori elders from around the country and that was his humorous, lovely way of putting it. So a lot of them proudly wear your work? They do. So how does that work, uh, Brian? Do they... Do, do they ask for a particular type of work? Most of my carvings that are done, you know, especially for people, not the commercial stuff that I do um, to make a living, um, starts with a story. It's the biggest starting point that I have. And, of course, that's how it always has been, and that's what the, you know, the carving was the written form. <laughs> I know in other settings um, people are encouraged and enhancing and recognising the spiritual side that a that a karakia is a as a sort of beginning point of prayer. Is that something that you've brought into what you do? I've been given a special karakia uh, to use when needed. Uh, the most important part of acknowledging that piece is to acknowledge that when I come into the creation space here, um, it's a, a space that is. I set aside, and every time I come in, um, and I use a, a water bowl um, just to make me stop and acknowledge that I'm going into a very privileged part of my life. You mentioned before Māori didn't have a word f for art. Can you explain that a little, little more? What, what, what? Well, the fish hook that's sort of an icon of New Zealand or Kiwis abroad even, uh, illustrates it beautifully. In that story, Tangaroa, the sea god, gave people the art of carving. They went down under the sea and, and obtained it from his house down there. When they went out fishing, it became a practice to make a special hook that didn't need to catch fish. It was to put down there to honour Tangaroa so that he would give his children the fish. Now, if you really analyse that and think about what's happening there, a person that's made a, a special hook to be able to do that has increased his skill, so his ordinary hooks will be better too. He doesn't want to lose that good hook, so he's going to make a really good line to put it on. But his other lines will consequently be better because he's learnt those skills. Because he's got into that frame of mind of looking for excellence, he's been listening to the elders better, and he'll bring in the catch. But what happened on shore when he brought the catch in? People said, his pleasing the spirit world has worked. And so they started decorating utensils and all sorts of other things to, do, to acknowledge the spirit world place. And so the whole community was lifted to a higher plane. And with the poor old fish hook at the end, when it wasn't being used for fishing, he didn't want to, uh, to lose it at all, so he put it around his neck. And so that explains you know, why the art is such an integral part of the whole community.
In the early 1990s, Brian, along with musicians Hirini Melbourne and Richard Nunns, helped spearhead a revival of Taonga Puru, traditional Māori instruments. In the display area of his workshop, Brian holds a collection of some of the instruments he's made. I'm holding a putatara shell trumpet, and this is the first uh, musical instrument that's talked about in the mythology. And two of these were played when Tane went up to the heavens to get uh, the knowledge that was needed to create the new world. And so they make a loud... So you, you started with a shell? started with shell and Māori and Tibetans are the only people, a lot of people use shell to make trumpet sounds, but as far as I can find out, only these two cultures have put a mouthpiece on the end. Yeah, so that's very interesting. And why the Tibetans would have shells <laughs> up in the middle of the mountains, I'm not sure. And that rattling noise we can hear, that's... That's a, a little decoration of power shells hanging on the end. And the mouthpiece? Uh... The mouthpiece gives a facility. You can see this face that's carved on the mouthpiece has two noses. Yeah. And in this case, it's because this instrument has two voices. That's its male voice, but then it has a female voice. And that's the voice of Hinimokimoki, the lonely lady. It's a, 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 an eerie sound. It right? is, isn't it? A really lonely sound, isn't it? Were they always as um, as beautiful as these, uh, the, the 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 instruments, as far oh, as you can tell? The the carving put into the. That's one of the wonderful things about the instruments. Music was so special that they were carved to acknowledge uh, the mana that they had. And that's why, like, when I wanted to study some of the instruments, like the puturino is the, the biggest, that's the one that's shaped like the uh, rokotori, like the case moths case. Uh, in the British Museum, I found out they've got about as many of these in their collection downstairs uh, as all the museums back home have. So the chance to go over there and look at them uh, it was a wonderful chance for me to see you know, if I could learn more about how to create them because they're made in two parts and bound so you can't see how they are inside anyhow. Uh, so you're holding something, what, about half a metre long? About half a metre long. Hmm. And, and it has a, has a mouthpiece in... A mouthpiece in the middle. middle. Yep. And it, the face around the mouthpiece is that of Rokotodi, who I mentioned comes out and sings to get her lover. So that's the... Uh, and the decoration on the body of the flute which is done in a kofaifai style uh, is the music so you can see the music with your eyes as well as seeing it with your ears how how does this sound it's female voice is a so it has quite a range of different notes so how did uh, how did this in interest in instruments start? How did that begin? Um, I was doing bone carving and wanted to extend the number of things I was doing, so I tried making a, a kawawa that I'd seen in, 
in a book in a kawawo. A flute, a small flute, a straight flute like this here. And um, while I was doing that, I met Richard Nunn's. Um, we were both teaching at the time, and we were seconded to a, a meeting in the area where they were getting information from the elders. And because we had access to tape recorders at school, Nobody else did. We were t taken along there to, with our tape recorders, well, not our tape recorders, uh, the school tape recorders, to record the uh, the meetings. And then we found while we were talking that we both had this interest. And I couldn't play them, and uh, Richard's hopeless at making them, but together we started the team. And eventually, uh, a few years later, Hilary uh, Melbourne saw us and liked what we were doing and gave us the huge honour of inviting us to be part of his dream of reviving the instruments. So you've ended up being an expert in Māori instruments um, along with the other two men, uh, Richard Nunns and Hidini Melbourne. It grew a lot bigger than, than simply just wanting to know how to make one, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. It, it grew into a way of life, really, a, a passion. Um, yeah, that's yeah, just been so fulfilling, even though I still can't play properly. Um, but being able to make them... In fact, being useless at playing was a bonus because the... The players, they could pick up any piece of wood and make a sound or bone and make a sound, but if I was going to get a sound, it had to be really good. And they found that the ones I made, if I could get a sound, they knew they were going to be spot on. So how did uh, how did that all start? Was there a, a hui involving you and, and Hirini Melbourne and Richard Nunn? Yes, there was a hui up at Te Araroa, up on the east coast, and that was the very first one that uh, in living memory of doing a workshop, you know, making more instruments so we could do things with them. There were a few Māori people who taught themselves to play, but we only found one um, old Māori man who had been taught to play as a boy. So it's a thread of knowledge that was getting close to, to snapping it. So to be part of bringing it back and to be part of a, the phenomena of how people were ready for it and accepted it, and now we have lots of players and lots of makers and to feel confident that it will go on well into the future. Any theories on why it disappeared, Brian, or starting to disappear? Yeah, um, one, the type, the way you blow the cross-blown way has a, a limited uh, range of notes, and when, when the European scale was introduced, they quickly adapted to the harmony of Western music but also the missionaries in that realised the spiritual nature of the sound and they discouraged it. So clearly a lot of satisfaction and, and a, a great journey, the carving, but the musical instruments, what's that been like as, a, as an experience of, of discovery? Um, well, of course, having Hedony Melbourne uh, to lead it and to guide it and to bringing all these stories to light, uh, he was such a wonderful person to work with. So did you travel around a lot together, just uh, running workshops and, and learning and teaching? We did, yes. We 
used a lot of weekend time up travelling around the country on marae so that the revival came from Māori people uh, and that's what ma has made it so successful of course and, and it was tiring but very satisfying and especially when you saw the number of people who had tears in their eyes and the number of old people who had faint memories of hearing the sounds when they were children and didn't think they'd hear them again. Uh, so very satisfying and of course you're working with people who are so enthusiastic and dedicated <clears throat> that that is, if you can do that, you're lucky as can be. Has it added to your, to your life beyond your working life, this connection you've had with the Māori world? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I've been hugely fortunate to um, travel overseas. Last year we were over in Munich and um, did a demonstration at the festival of the Long Night of the Museums. We had two and a half thousand German people come through in the one night uh, looking at the instruments and the bone carvings and people were just so interested and the result was that the director got me back the next day to go down to the dungeons and look at the things that they had in their storerooms and because I was interested especially in the musical instruments they had two instruments that were collected by Captain Cook's voyages and not only was I allowed to look at them but I was asked to play them and you know the thrill of doing things like that and I've had that same privilege in museums in different parts of the world you know you're just on cloud nine you can't believe that it's happening to you. A Pākehā in a, in, a, in a Māori world is that how you sort of see yourself? Um, I was doing a, a workshop out here with the local people and um, somebody said to the kuya that was there, uh, what's this Pākehā doing here? Oh, don't tell him. He doesn't realise he's a Pākehā. But it has added to my way of life, to my thinking and aspirations and... Uh, yeah, I'm just blessed.